Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm your host, Anthony Caldellas. There are arguably only two or three events in the history of the Byzantine Empire that had a hugely disruptive impact on it, and the Fourth Crusade was certainly one of those. The story is well known, it's been told many times. Uh, some crusading leaders in the West decided to contract with the Venetians for the building of a fleet that would take them to their objectives in the Eastern Mediterranean. And through a very complicated series of financial uh, shortfalls and bad decisions on the part of everybody, the army ended up being diverted to Constantinople, which city eventually it conquered and destroyed, uh, largely killing large part of the population and um, replacing the native Byzantine political authorities with a series of Western states. At that point, the leaders of the crusade, having dismembered the Byzantine Empire, began to engage in a series of uh, projects that perhaps are not seen as typical of crusading. Um, these included, after the slaughter of a large number of Christians, the exploitation of their resources and labor, uh, reconfiguring them so as to serve their own uh, Western trade networks, um, and the restructuring of political authority in the territories that they occupied um, so that they, the Frankish conquerors, and their compatriots who came subsequently from the West would benefit. Now, one may argue whether those kinds of results are inherent to crusading activity or are incidental to it, um, and that we should instead see crusading activity as defined by more religious objectives, regardless of whether those were actually attained or not. There's also a question of which sources one uses in order to reconstruct uh, this history and tell the story of the people involved in it. Uh, there are a number of Western medieval historians who tell that story um, through Western sources, um, and so they see the occupation of the Aegean region as an extension of Western modes um, and Many of these historians are reluctant to use uh, sources in Greek or other Eastern languages um, to tell the story of the population that was subjugated or had to reconstitute its own social and political orders in the aftermath of this catastrophe. On the other hand, there are and there have been many Byzantinists, historians of Byzantium, who see these events as a part of a longer history of the Byzantine Empire and focus on the activities of Byzantines who are trying to reconstitute their state um, in, in various places in, in, in the Balkans and Asia Minor, and for whom the Western presence is a kind of opponent to be resisted in the march toward reclaiming Constantinople. And for a large part of the scholarship, these two traditions, uh, one looking at knights, the other looking at uh, Byzantines trying to regroup, um, tended not to produce a very unified story. And it's not clear what category we would use to integrate those stories. Uh, what, what, would it, what would it be? I mean, the category of crusading uh, doesn't uh, uh, help for very, much, um, for very much longer during the story. Um, well, there have been a number of attempts, but one of the most interesting ones that have appeared recently is by George Dimakopoulos, who is a chair, the chair of Orthodox Christian Studies at Fordham University. 
Um, and he has just published a book called Colonizing Christianity, Greek and Latin Religious Identity in the Era of the Fourth Crusade, which argues that one of the most productive, or certainly a productive, um, framework for uh, understanding what happened um, in the 13th century in uh, the Aegean region is that of colonialism. And he explicitly connects those events and their significance for the formation of uh, eventually rival and exclusionary religious identities uh, between Catholic and Orthodox uh, to this period and to a framework that he believes is uh, continuous uh, with the later um, experiences and history of Western colonialism in other parts of the world. Um, and this is a framework that I have suspected would work, but never tried it myself or looked very closely into it. But I think that uh, uh, George's analysis is convincing and um, I think it deserves to, uh, this is a, a mode of analysis that deserves to be explored more fully. Uh, so here's my conversation with George Dimacopoulos. Welcome, George, and thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I have to say, I was very excited when I received your book uh, because this was an idea that I had uh, just kind of vaguely kind of imagined that, in fact, uh, there would be some benefit and profit for historical understanding in reading the Fourth Crusade and its aftermath through a colonial lens. Um, I, I've always wondered why this hasn't been taken up, um, and I'm certainly not the person to do it, but I was so happy that you finally did. And there's so many ways in which we can go about this, and I, and I hope that more people do. Um, so I, I, you're, you describe your book as a thought experiment on the first page, um, and I, I thought I was thinking about it as I read it as a kind of proof of concept, almost like a pilot episode in what I hope will be a, a more sort of fleshed out uh, reading of this period in, through a colonial and post-colonial theory. Uh, so why don't I ask you first, um, so what led you to read these events and this period through this lens? Uh, yeah, it's, it, I, in a way I came to it in a circuitous way. Uh, in addition to being a kind of scholar of Byzantine Christianity, I also co-direct this Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham. And so some of the projects that the center does brings us into the modern world. Even though my training is as a pre-modern historian, um, I'm thinking a lot about the modern world and the dynamics in the modern world. And some of the projects we did a few years ago um, – it just seemed to scream that there is a backstory to why all Eastern Christians feel so um, victimized uh, by the West. Uh, you can, uh, you can, you know, meet someone who just converts to Orthodox Christianity in a, you know, within a, a recent time, and they take the victimhood of the Fourth Crusade uh, personally. And so I, I had that as part of the background. Um, I obviously have my pre-modern historical training as part of the background. And then one of the things that was going on at Fordham was I'm in a, a kind of critical theory reading group with other scholars of religion. And we did two or three years of post-colonial critique. And so it just became for me this cauldron 
um, that led me to to think uh, more seriously about um, the contemporary uh, understanding of Eastern Christian identity vis-a-vis the West, uh, the victimhood that goes along with that, plus just a perennial interest I had always had in the Crusades as a as a broader subject. Right, because so your book has a sort of double impact. On the one hand, it's making an argument about events in the 13th century and authors and how their understanding of their place in the world shifted uh, as a result of the conquest of Constantinople and the subsequent subjugation um, of parts of the uh, Greek-speaking world, the Orthodox world. But at the same time, it points toward these contemporary issues that you just mentioned, though I think you, you only allude to those in the book. I mean, the book is mostly focused on the texts of that time as a kind of matrix for what might have come later. Uh, so can you say something about, so what, what, what do you think we, we gain in understanding about that period by looking at it through a, a, as a colonial kind of encounter? I believe we gain two things. First and uh, most obviously, we understand what happened, uh, how it happened, and why it happened um, more fully, more completely if we treat it as colonialism. Um, second, uh, and even though the book doesn't really do this, as, as you say, it gestures towards it. Um, but in a sense, perhaps more importantly, uh, treating the Fourth Crusade as an act of colonialism helps us to better understand the long-term consequences um, for Eastern Christians uh, after this uh, 13th century encounter. Um, if I might add a little more here, I, I would list myself among a group of scholars who believe that colonialism does more than advance a specific economic or political system. If we look around the globe and study the long-term consequences of colonialism, we understand that it often has profound cultural and sociological implications long after the economic and the political systems have changed. The colonists have left, so to speak. Uh, these long-term effects that linger after colonialism is what scholars refer to as post-colonialism or the post-colonial condition. With respect to the Fourth Crusade, I believe we gain a far more comprehensive understanding of the Eastern Christian world uh, in the Byzantium that lingered, so 13th, 14th, 15th century, um, even though I, I know that you aren't always so sure we should call that Byzantium anymore. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm convinced, in fact, that every debate within Eastern Christianity today contains the lingering specter of the Western Christian colonization of Eastern Christianity in the Fourth Crusade, because every Christian debate is somehow entangled in the question of whether or not anything good can come from the West. And, and a suspicion of Western motives, especially when they are couched in such idealistic terms. Uh, I, I, I remember distinctly the, um, in 1999, the, the attack by NATO on Serbia, Yes, yes. Yeah, and there was this, you know, there, I, I just saw it. There's like this, this instinctive suspicion any time a Western power comes along to, you know, protect human rights in that case. Um, right. I, I recall the invasion of Afghanistan two years later was 
presented as a, the first feminist war in history, I think. Uh, right. So, yeah, yeah, there's there's this deep seated suspicion when Western powers, you know, start throwing bombs around in the name of some high ideal. Uh, now, in the particular case of the 13th century, yeah, you know, this, this took a, a specific configuration. Um, right. And and you're right. Uh, I think most historians probably would look at things like uh, the extraction of resources, um, the exploitation of the local labor population, right, as kind of definitive of a colonial situation. Um, right. You know, in fact, if, if I can digress for a moment, I, I, I had the suspicion also that the Fourth Crusade was not only all of these things, it, it caused all of these things, but it was a very particular type of capitalist venture. Uh, and it's not talked about that way, but if you think about it, right, that the diversion of the Crusader fleet happened because a contractual agreement had been made about initial investment and recouping that investment. Yes. And when the Crusaders couldn't provide the manpower to, you know, follow the original plan, the Venetians, as the bankers slash investors of the project, basically required payback in whatever form they wanted uh, I, and it it's it's really oddly contemporary um as to sort of the the banking financial investment side driving the rest of the project uh but anyway i mean this wasn't how it was discussed at the time i'm no i i, I think you're exactly right and um so th there are a lot of people there are a lot of people who do post-colonial critique who want to insist that it is only um, it only refers to the early modern world, to the world of ex, uh, exploration, exploitation of of Western Europeans, you know, sell it, sailing to um, uh, the Western Hemisphere or to Asia or whatever. Um, but this is, I think, to really misunderstand the historical uh, significance of the Crusades as a whole, not not just the fourth, but all of them. I mean, even uh, my understanding is even the very notion of deposit banking, which underlies all capitalism, uh, was invented uh, by need for crusaders because crus going on a crusade was a very expensive endeavor. And. You know, you often uh, you were going to be gone for decades if you survived that long and you needed a way to get your money to Jerusalem. And so the Crusaders literally invented um, a means for depositing money in the banks of Italy and then being able to withdraw money when they got to wow. uh, the Holy Land. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, no, what, what's the expression? Um uh, need is the or the uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and I think the fourth. I, I mean, as you say, the fourth crusade specifically with the investment by the Venetians and the outcome and so forth. I I think you're exactly right. Well, let's let's wait. I mean, maybe we'll get the the capitalist history of the Crusades or, or the Crusades a banking perspective because yeah, um, there you go. There's there no go. lack of books on the Crusade. Okay, yeah. so let's turn to some of the specific uh, readings that you propose in the book. And I think that many of them can sort of be grouped around um, the question of how did the Crusaders or the Franks justify conquering a foreign land, you know, taking its stuff and just installing their, their own rulers over a local population. So you suggest some of the rationalizations that they engaged in. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so one of them is um, uh, moral superiority, right? Um, they, uh, the Franks are uh, morally righteous. The Greeks are nefarious. Uh, the Greeks are not. I, I mean, a lot of these are relying on ancient tropes of Greeks, um, but nonetheless, they're infused with a kind of Frankish medieval uh, mentality. So, so one of the ways um, the Franks never break an oath and the Greeks constantly break oaths. Um, this uh, establishes the this establishes uh, the Franks as morally superior to the Greeks, and because they are morally superior, they have the moral high ground um, to sort of uh, set matters aright in Constantinople. Um, I mean, one if, if someone is new to the story of the Fourth Crusade. Um, what happens is you, you get this huge Latin army outside of Constantinople at the invitation of a Byzantine prince who has been dispossessed of his rights. Um, his father has uh, his father's throne has been usurped and uh, the father has been put in prison um, by, a, you know, a terrible uncle. And so the and, and now this prince has promised the Crusaders, and he his sister happens to be married to one of the Crusaders. He's promised the Crusaders more money, more gold than they could ever imagine. And to be sure, Constantinople is the largest city, uh, most powerful city in the world, and and so this is very appealing uh, to the Crusaders. And so they're camped outside of the city, and they help to um, bring about. Um, the uh, downfall of the evil uncle and the restoration of the prince, but the prince then can't pay the amount that he promises. And so uh, in the months leading up to the crusader decision to take the city for themselves, um, the, the Franks uh, begin to concoct uh, a, a variety of justifications to authorize their seizure of the city, uh, including their moral superiority. Um, for some of the crusaders, it also, of course, has to do with religious superiority. Um, the Greeks have abandoned the true faith. They are no longer uh, Submissive to the Bishop of Rome, they um, they have adopted some uh, religious practices that, in the telling of these Crusade chroniclers, um, uh, might as well be Islamic. Um, there's this kind of orientalize this orientalizing going on. Um, the Byzantines would dare to, you know, share table with Muslims and, and things like this. So they come up with a whole series of, of uh, justifications um, that really reflect um, contemporary Frank, uh, contemporary Frankish code of conduct, so to speak, that the Byzantines in this telling don't fulfill. And this authorizes their uh, their um, putting down of these nefarious Greeks. Yeah, and so this results in an order, a political order, right, of subjugation. And so do those kinds of rationalizations then become constitutive of that order? Like are, are the Franks subsequently ruling in Greece uh, or in Constantinople uh, based on this kind of superiority, um, treating, uh, viewing the Greeks as rebels against some prior order, the, the Church of Rome maybe, uh, or 
Yeah, so one of the things that's really fascinating is so so they take Constantinople, right? And they hold Constantinople for almost 60 years. But they also take um, uh, the vast majority of what today constitutes modern Greece and many of the Greek islands, and they actually never leave. <laughs> they, 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 there are some pockets, uh, particularly in the, in the southern part of Greece, the Peloponnesus, where the Franks are there longer than the Byzantines at all, right? I, I mean, they hold out against the uh, Ottomans longer, longer than the sort of rejuvenated Byzantines do. And one of the fascinating things uh, about uh, this research is that in different areas, uh, the Franks, well, well, the Franks has kind of turned Byzantium into a kind of hybrid of of what the empire had been with an infusion of Frankish notions of feudalism. And depending on where you are at which century, it either looks more like the Frankish West or it looks more like uh, Byzantium. So in and around Constantinople, the Franks who take over basically – turn uh, and embrace the kind of Byzantine imperial model. They, they refer to themselves as emperors. They, uh, it's really kind of fascinating. They adopt uh, Greek dress. They adopt Greek customs. Um, they, they go native in a kind of way. In the Peloponnesus, uh, you find a real hybridity. Uh, so you have, you have some lingering... Uh, Byzantine notions of property rights and and uh, leadership, um, but it's infused with Frankish uh, feudalism and and so forth. And you find you really find these really uh, differing uh, concoctions, um, uh, a kind of hybridity, a political and cultural hybridity, and and that also. And this is one of the reasons I'm so interested by that. What it really leads to is uh, a kind of whole-scale religious hybridity. Um, and that is that religious hybridity is what gets the hardliners, both the Latins and the Greeks, really upset. Could you um, give some examples of this hybridity? So what sorts of things uh, are you talking about? Um, yeah, so for example, um, in the, again, in the Peloponnesus, um, and we know of this from a fascinating text uh, known as the Chronicle of the Moria. The Moria is a Latin word for this region of Greece, the Peloponnesus. Um, for example, you have a Frankish uh, king, right, um, a descendant several generations down, who in his last will and testament starts to... Um, uh, make funds available for uh, funeral masses um, or liturgies to be performed in Greek in a in a Byzantine style, right? So, or in a kind of Greek style. Um, another uh, other uh, expressions of hybridity, or at least a kind of crossing of lines, has to do with um, deliberately choosing a Greek or a Latin as a godfather. Um, even though you have some people at this time, really for the first time, um, insisting that uh, there needs to be a sacramental break between Greeks and Latins. Uh, so you'll have some uh, Latin sources, particularly on the Venetian side, that want to keep strict boundaries between Greek and Latin sacraments. Um, but the Franks 
uh, interestingly enough, um, are perfectly willing to tolerate cross um, sacramental activity. And so you see this in uh, questions of marriage. You see this in questions of picking godparents for children and, um, and, and so forth. Yeah, the, this hybridity is an interesting concept here because it um, you see it also in other domains. Um, for example, the literature, um, the chronicle was produced is either originally composed in Greek or soon translated into Greek. Yeah, it's still it's still debated whether it's uh, Greek or Old French was the original version. We don't have the original version, so we don't know right. which, which is being translated and which isn't. But the Franks in Greece. Some of them at some point decided to have a Greek version of it. Yes. And it is, it's this weird text in a way because it's, it's written in almost vernacular Greek of that time, like what those Frankish conquerors would have been speaking two or three generations later. Yes. But is intensely anti-Byzantine. Right. Uh, and, you know, makes disparaging comments about the, the Romans who are... you exactly the things that you were saying earlier like you can't trust them their religion is deviant or you know they don't follow rome and yeah. and this has produced this text which is one of the it's sort of this paradox where it's one of the earliest texts in vernacular greek that some like modern greek scholars for example want to treat as like oh, here are the origins of national greek oh. literature but yeah. <laughs> until you read it when you realize it's basically a Western text. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it really is. Uh, this Chronicle of the Moria really is a fascinating text. And, and there are a couple of other really interesting things about it. So um, uh, it it uh, so it it shows this blending of cultural traditions so even though it's this, you know, it's speaking about a Frankish nobility who's now been in Greece for uh, more than 100 years, they appropriate various, they begin to describe certain events as um, using Greek terms, like they kind of transliterate and appropriate Greek terms. They refer to leaders as archons, right, or archontes. Um, uh, and so you have the, the you have the this kind of terminological thing, but then you also have these Greeks performing ritual combat or, or ritual trials. Um, and, you, you know, on, on the issue of you can't trust the Byzantines, you can't trust the Byzantines, my reading of the text, and you might disagree with me, my reading of the text is when, well, when it says you can't trust the Romans, it's not necessarily referring to somebody who is an indigenous Greek speaker, I think what they're referring to as it, or is indigenous Greek speakers whose political loyalty is to the Romans in Constantinople. Yeah, right? that could and, be. That, that could be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're trying to make this distinction, but, and this is one of the reasons that I think post-colonial critique is so helpful here, because the kind of methodological apparatus that post-colonial critique provides is a way to see the unevenness in this text um, and, and to kind of lift it up to understand the kind of radical tr cultural transformation that is uh, at place because of this disruption. And, and so it helps you to kind of see and unpack 
um, these these different ways, how literally from one section to a next, it can describe very positive things about the Romans, the Byzantines, and, and then in the next paragraph say they can't be trusted, they're the most awful people in the world, and so forth. And um, Yeah, I wanted, yeah. To ask, I wanted to ask you about that specifically, because in your readings, as you go through authors and texts, you pay a lot of attention to um, their internal contradictions. Um, yes. And you do this with Pope Innocent, who has a very contradictory view of what had happened and its victims. Uh, you do it with uh, Acropolites, a Byzantine historian and statesman, um, and in the Chronicle, just uh, the Morea, just as you mentioned. So why is identifying these contradictions uh, so important for applying a, a post-colonial analysis, uh, what you call sometimes you call them internal fissures? So why is that distinctive yeah. of this type of analysis? Yeah. So, um, you, you know, when you uh, it might be easy to sort of look at a text and see internal contradictions and to suggest, well, this author's just not that bright. Right. This author doesn't know, doesn't realize that he's being self-contradictory and that there's no consistent thesis. I mean, when, when we look at undergraduate papers that don't have a consistent thesis, uh, you, you know, we tend to tell our students they need to do a better job, right? right. Um, and, and yet, so, so you could just dismiss these texts. Um, but I, in fact, um, want to make the case, and I'm certainly not the first, I, I'm following other scholars who employ post-colonial analysis, that in these particular kind of cultural cauldrons, um, the internal contradictions actually testify to, uh, on the one hand, the rapidly changing um, uh, reality on the ground. And on the other hand, the efforts of the author, uneven as they are, to find a structure that makes sense to explain the rapidly changing nature of what's going on. And so these, there is a way, I think, to actually see these moments of contradiction or these fissures within the text is actually a kind of sophisticated effort to negotiate what's going on rather than, you, you know, the undergraduate who can't hold his thesis together. Um, and, and when you sort of see some of the ingenious ways in which these texts do try to make sense of things and do still try to hold on to certain uh, moral or ethical um, uh, themes and, and concerns, uh, that's when you see just how rich these texts are. And, and you, you understand um, uh, th these texts bear witness to the fact that life is always complicated, right? There has never been a time when a population wasn't pulled in different directions, and I think uh, those internal fissures speak directly to that. I think too often when we look back at the past, um, we want to put people into neat camps. So they all thought this and the others all thought that. And it's just a it's a binary fight between the two of them. Um, when it comes to religious identity in the wake of the Fourth Crusade, I would say, no, there, are, there is no binary. There is no all Latin, all Greek, and nothing in between. I, I, I would say it's, it's a complete mess, and people are trying to sort it out. Of course, and especially those 
um, at the time who are insisting on the binary uh, are insisting, <laughs> protesting too much. Right? I mean, right, so they're clearly trying to draw lines in what they perceive and probably experience as a very mixed situation. Um, and But I, I want to add that this isn't simply a case of a historical encounter such as might happen anywhere. It happened in the aftermath of a horrendous event right. that scarred a lot of people. Um, and I, I would even argue, and, and I think this comes out in your reading, especially of, of the letters of Pope Innocent, that it it also had a negative effect on the Latin side. Uh, now, Innocent wasn't a sort of perpetrator of this. It's not something that he wanted. Um, but he moved to take advantage of it when he when he saw the advantages that it uh, that it offered. Um, and I, would it sort of would it be consistent with a post colonial reading to say that? And so this is a this is an interesting psychological trait that people have, or at least I was reading some psychological literature a few years ago, and actually this was connected to Benjamin Franklin, of all people, mm. and he had this idea. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of interesting. He had this idea that if there's someone who doesn't like you, and you want to make that person like you, you ask that person to do a favor for you. Now, this sounds counterintuitive. Like, right. why, first of all, why would you ask someone who doesn't like you to do a favor but the the idea is that in doing the favor, you develop a, a different view of a person as someone who's worthy of that favor, and you come to think of him in more positive terms because you, maybe you've done the favor, maybe you did it grudgingly, but having done the favor, you retroactively reimagine that person as worthy of that favor, and you like him more. And he, 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 act, you know, Benjamin Franklin, he actually tested yeah. this. Um, but it works the other way as well. In other words, if you've done a horrendous harm to someone, you're just as likely to retroactively think that that person deserved it. Right. Rather right, right. than that. Oh man, we really we really screwed up and have to pay reparations or something, right? right. So having done this, having you know burned this city, killed all these people, all the killing and raping and plundering and all this, it it incentivizes people who are associated with the perpetrating institutions, let's say, to drift psychologically into this area of they deserved it, and this develops right into many of the texts that we see, right. You're exactly right. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, all the texts we have of the account, none of them are written before or as it's going on. They're all written in retrospect. Um, and I would actually point to, to something else, uh, which I don't really do a lot within the book other than the gesture to it. Um, when news gets out in the West that the Crusaders have sacked, pillaged, and conquered Constantinople. There is absolute alarm. Uh, I, I mean, Innocent finds himself kind of overjoyed because he, he, he thinks he sees what it can do for him. But there are a number of critics in the West who think that this is an absolute travesty. So at one and the same time, 
the crusaders who begin to justify their accounts by saying the Greeks deserved it. They're not just speaking for the local Greek audience who they you know, who they now have the responsibility and the challenge of policing and bringing them in line and so forth, which is doomed from the start. But they're also having to justify themselves back at home. How could you do this? How could you do this? You were supposed to go and kill Muslims. What are you doing killing Christians? And, um, and, and, and this is yet another feature that is actually true of colonial literature as a whole. Um, uh, if, if, if you look at uh, Britain or Spain or, or what have you in the, in the period we typically refer to as colonialism, those countries too um, have um, a kind of vigorous internal debate about whether or not colonialism is in fact a good. And um, anyway, I, I just wanted to add that in there that 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 these these authors are speaking in multiple contexts and in all of them trying to justify what they've done. Right. And they're often addressing the uh, the audience back home. Right. Yeah. Right. So why do you pay so much attention to sexuality in the book? I mean, I noticed this. This was a theme running through it. Um, I, I was I was glad that you you kept coming back to it. Uh, is there something distinctive to the postcolonial analysis, uh, or so why is it so prominent? Um, so I guess there's three reasons. First of all, the the theorists who in postcolonial analysis who most inspired me, um, it is a prominent feature of their own work. I mean, Edward Said. Um, uh, even though he really didn't develop it, it, he's really the first to to suggest that colonialism is always wrapped up with um, themes of sexuality, sexual conquest, and 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 so forth. Um, more specifically, um, I guess uh, I do it for two reasons. First, uh, the sources themselves are fixated on these themes. Um, Robert de Clary, um, with whom I spend my first chapter, is uh, constantly talking about Byzantine women um, and what the Byzantine women um, uh, think of the Franks as manly and the Greeks as effeminate, which is an ancient trope, but nonetheless, it it functions for him very well. Um, so the sources themselves do it, both on the Greek side and and on the Latin side. Um, uh, second, um, one of the significant long-term consequences of the Fourth Crusade is that it introduced into the Christian imagination the possibility that Eastern Christians and Western Christians should not marry. Um, precisely because they didn't want them to have children. They didn't want to have a mixture of, of Greek and Latins um, because to do so would be to dilute the purity of one's religious community. Um, what surprised me when I worked on this aspect of the book is the fact that the arguments that are put forward, especially on the Greek side in the 13th century, uh, which prohibit marriage, actually have absolutely nothing to do with theology. There's no theological justification for why Greeks can't marry Latins. Um, rather, they're predicated on cultural animosity and cultural assumption. Um, you can't marry a Frank because a Frank can't be trusted. Um, Greeks can be trusted, and, uh, and, and in fact, not only can you not marry a Frank, you can't marry a Greek who was willing to tolerate Frankish rule 
because the Greek who is willing to tolerate Frankish rule can't be trusted. Wow. And so we don't and so we don't want to have any intermarriage here. Um, and with time, those cultural and sociological biases get supplemented with theological language um, uh, such that uh, even today in the Orthodox Church, um, you will find priests and hardliners who say you can't marry Roman Catholics and that sort of thing. But the initial um, articulation of these uh, uh, restrictions is only cultural and political. It has nothing to do with theology. Right, because you talk at the end of the book about how these confessional or religious communal identities harden among some people in, in the aftermath. And um, that I think your, your book is making a broader argument that this is when we begin to see the sort of hardened identities of what today we call Catholic and Orthodox with people, so you mentioned Jomatinos, uh, who was the uh, the bishop whose um, decisions were predicated on those kinds of exclusionary assumptions, right? Right. Um, they're trying yes. to draw those lines even harder. Yeah. And yeah. and um, so correct me if if I haven't understood this correctly, but the um, so your book is arguing that this it's the aftermath of this event and this sort of hybrid situation that propels the the hardening of those identities in a way that's more recognizable today before the fourth crusade you know eastern christians and western christians were much less likely to draw a firm line like that between them is that right that that's exactly right so even somebody with a cursory understanding of christian history right that they'll know that um, you know, there's this thing called the schism uh, in 1054 when, when the Orthodox and Catholics basically start yelling at each other. And you know, look, it's an important date and everything. Um, but actually nothing um, there that that is not an actual breaking of communion. People speak of this as a breaking of communion. You can't have sacraments. You can't marry and so forth. That that doesn't occur at all in 1054. The only thing that occurs in 1054 um, for which we have evidence, is that the Patriarch of Constantinople no longer commemorates the Bishop of Rome in his liturgy, and the Pope no longer commemorates the Patriarch of Constantinople in his liturgy. There is no severing of communion for the average layperson. None. That severing of communion between travelers or communities or what have you only begins to occur for the hardliners in the 13th century. Um, it's the hardliners in the 13th century who are so frustrated by the majority hybridity that is existing with the colonial settlement in Greece and the Balkans. They're so upset by that that they begin to introduce the language that will lead to eventually the, the, the full-blown sacramental separation between Orthodox and Catholics. And it is absolutely, I'm making the case, um, I, it is absolutely the 13th century, the Fourth Crusade, the lingering um, uh, animosity that occurs from it that propels that and makes it happen. But it's actually a very slow process. Um, you still have intercommunion going on well into the 17th century. 
And then by the 17th century, those lines, it, it's hard and fast and it's done. Interesting. Yeah. So you, you, I mean, you may well be right about this. And so when I read it in your book, I, I sort of made a mental note to see if I can find any evidence to the contrary. <laughs> so far, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> so well let me know if you do because um well I, you know we always want to know the truth right oh well no 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 i i, I, th yeah. I think you're right because if you're talking about the big picture any exceptions would be really um idiosyncratic um, right and see, I, so i'm working on the early byzantine period now i'm writing a new history of it and mm -hmm. paying a lot of attention to this question actually because I've also always been sort of puzzled by what 1054 actually signified. In fact, I think there's also a question about what actually happened, but let's yeah, yeah. set that aside. But So what, what exactly does it mean? And I think you're right. that That is all it meant. And it wasn't the first of its kind, um, the first event of that kind. Um, no, certainly not. No, I, I think it goes right back to the 4th century. Yeah. That is the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople not getting along in some way and not commemorating each other in the diptychs or the you know the liturgy was almost half the time like you know between 340 when this first happens to my knowledge and you know the 7th century or afterwards uh it's almost half the time that they're just not talking to each other did this affect anyone's behavior or perception of ecclesiastical unity on the ground I, I can't find anyone no I, I i i can't imagine that it does i mean you'd have to be like super scrupulously following the politics of your own bishop yeah if you go to rome and you don't you know go to a church let, let me let me back up i i can imagine some monastic communities in the holy land so in palestine right sure sure where where you do have these mixed communities um because they're pilgrimage communities i could imagine it might have some impact there um uh apart from that um, apart from those monastic communities in Palestine, um, I doubt that those schisms ever really impacted um, uh, uh, very many people. Um, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, we come down to trauma. Yeah. Really yeah. being. Uh, yeah. Like it it causes all kinds of you know, ruptures and divisions you know, beyond yeah. the immediate harm. Um, and again, I mean, well, I'm, I'm really glad that you that you stress the issue of sexuality, because I think that those kinds of you know, gen ideas about gender and fantasies about sexual domination drive a lot more history than we like to imagine. Um, yeah, I think and, that's right. Yeah. And, and the fantasy of su subjugating a sort of feminized other, I, I think it does start before. Um, the Fourth Crusade uh, in the West. And I, actually, I'm going to have a separate discussion about this uh, with uh, Elena Beck, who's written about these mm. Western fantasies of, of Byzantium. Um, there, there are even these rape fantasies uh, where Western knights go off and you know, rape all these women in Constantinople. And when, when, you, when you combine that with the feminization of Greek men... Right. Yeah, yeah that's pretty toxic. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it even plays out, you know, in this one text, and 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 
I'm not sure everybody's going to agree with me. Um, you, you know, there's this the one the second chapter of my book is um, uh, a text by uh, somebody named Gunther of Paris, and it's it's a kind of unusual hagiography where it the the account is a German monk who goes on the crusade and basically manages to steal a whole bunch of religious treasures and to bring them back to Germany. And the, the text is written as a justification of stealing religious treasure. Um, but there's this, what I consider to be a fascinating account where he ends up encountering this old, beautiful priest is the way the text describes it. And I'm convinced, others may disagree, that this text is dripping with homoerotic innuendo um, by design, that it that it is deliberately doing so, um, because against the backdrop of this distant, dangerous, exotic East, right. um, which which just falls along a lot of other kind of Western tropes in literature and so forth. And um, yeah, so uh, it's it, it's there. It is definitely there in these texts. Well, I'm glad you, you brought it out. And I'm also thank you for writing this book. I hope that it starts a broader conversation. I think we need to have it. I think also that medieval historians, broadly understood, um, I think need to make connections to the expansion of Europe and European colonialism in you know the 15th, 16th centuries. Um, and to link it back up to these moments in the Eastern Mediterranean, which... Um, in some respects, provided the template for what happened afterwards um, mm. and part of the same story. Uh, anyway, uh, so thank you, George. Uh, uh, we're out of time, but I would like in closing to ask you to recommend two books that you've read that are not about this topic necessarily that you would recommend to our listeners just as good reading. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, two books I've read. Um so I recently read um, Meredith Ryle's book on Leo the um, Sixth, uh, which is uh, the Byzantine emperor who uh, is responsible for um, a whole lot of things. He's probably most notorious for having been married a fourth time, which gets him into a whole bunch of trouble. Um, but he also writes a series of uh, military treatises and uh, her argument in the book is that his military treatises are always informed by a particular kind of theological vision. And so I found that um, really uh, interesting to think with. Um, and uh, another book uh, I read recently, um, which is a little bit more about Rome than about um, Constantinople or Byzantium, um, is a book called The City of Saints. And uh, hold on just a second. I'm grabbing it from my shelf because I'm going to mispronounce the author's name. It's uh, Maya Mascarinich, um, City of Saints, Rebuilding Rome in the Early Middle Ages. And it is a fascinating account of the ways in which Rome, the topography of Rome, uh, in the early Middle Ages is just saturated with relics 
um, and uh, the cult of saints and so forth. And it's a very careful, detailed study of how that comes to be and what impact that then has on the Carolingian imagination of the city of Rome. Excellent. Thank you. I think I just saw a review of that. Uh, so I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you so much, uh, George. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Anthony. Be well.